it's affordable here. It's beautiful. It's relatively quiet and uh, inspiring. It's really uh, uh, this confluence is so unique. And I think when people visit here, if you're not from here, you're really wowed. You know, it's definitely a spectacular place. And if you've grown up here, you may take that for granted. (laughs) But uh, when, when my, when my parents and my grandmother came to visit, they were, the first thing they noticed were the hills. And if you come from a flat part of the country, which is a lot of the country, the, uh, the hills are even amazing to people. And again, that's something we, we take for granted, the Lewiston Hill and just the ridges and the valley is just so beautiful. And uh, yeah, really, I do believe that it is the hidden gem. And uh, that's why I wanted to study it. And I'm really happy and relieved that I feel, I feel safe to live here. If you are from the LCV or have passed through downtown, you may have noticed a distinct odor characteristic of paper mill towns. If you've ever asked someone, what is that smell? You've probably heard the old adage, that's the smell of money. Well, this week we spoke with atmospheric chemist, Dr. Nancy Johnston and discover what causes that smell. Spoiler alert, it's not the smell of crisp dollar bills. More importantly, we learn about the air quality of the valley and how it affects the health of LCV residents. So stay tuned to learn more about the air you breathe. Nancy Johnston from LCSE. Uh, thank you for coming in and being on the Old Spiral podcast today. I'm really happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me, Brian. You're welcome. Um, let's see. I had lots of classes from you, at least if four, I think, technically, if you count PCAM 1 and 2. Yep. Yeah. And so let's see. You teach at LCSE. Let's just get your background. Like... Um, how should we start, Drew? Yeah, I think it would be it would be cool to hear kind of your background. Um, what what brought you to the valley? Sort of what what you like about the valley, and um, I think it'd be cool to talk about some of the the research that you got to do as a student as well, because I know you were a part of some pretty cool stuff um, in your graduate studies. Right. Okay. Well. We'll start back in 1970s somewhere. Uh, I was born in Buffalo, New York, which uh, if you don't know New York State well, it's on the complete opposite side of New York City. We're about eight hours from New York City. So it's completely opposite ends of the state. Cold up there. I had some (laughs) buffalo wings the other day and I actually thought of you. I love buffalo wings. Almost everybody in Buffalo does. Uh, it's hard to beat the wings in Buffalo. Anyway, I grew up there, born and raised, uh, left at 18 to go to college, and I went to William Smith College in uh, the Finger Lakes region, which is the middle of the state, and that's in Geneva, New York. And so I spent four years there studying chemistry 
and geoscience. So I double majored. I wanted to squeeze in a triple major with math, but you know, to graduate in four years, you know, you gotta, you gotta let something <laughs> slide like a triple major, you know, that's a little over, over achiever status there. So, uh, but anyway, and I also, during that four years, I got a, a teaching credential for New York state to teach secondary science and chemistry and earth science. And, uh, but by the time I was finished with that degree, I kind of learned that I looked too young to command students in a classroom. And so classroom management was too tough for me for high schoolers. I just looked like a high school kid. And so uh, by my senior year, I decided to teach college instead because I figured, well, that's adults and that sounds like an easier audience. <laughs> but to teach college, you know, you need an, a higher advanced degree. So I decided that I was going to get a PhD in chemistry so I could teach college level chemistry. And uh, while doing so, I was, you know, this is my senior year, I was doing an honors uh, pro uh, research project that actually required you to write a thesis as a, you know, as an undergrad. And so I did that. I graduated with honors. My, my research involved uh, instrumentation that allowed you to study elemental composition of, of really anything. And so what I studied was the Finger Lakes sediment. And uh, I looked at just differences in elements and that led to kind of conclusions of pre-glacial uh, sediment to post-glacial sediment because uh, in the ice ages in, in that region and as in many regions in, the, in, in North America, glaciers came down and then they retreated back. So we can we actually saw the differences in the lake sediment between uh, the glacial period and the non-glacial period. So that's what I studied as an undergrad. It was a perfect mix of chemistry and geology. I loved it, uh, but it sparked my my love for research. And so I, as I applied for graduate schools, I wanted to really get an exciting research project because uh, for a PhD in sciences. Uh, you don't just take classes, you do independent research, novel research that contributes something new to science, as uh, I know Brian figured out because he got a master's thesis in environmental engineering. And so that's you know right. what that's about. Oh, yeah. Right. And uh, you definitely want to find something you're interested in, because if you don't, that could be a long slog. <laughs> right. And so my ultimate goal was obviously, like I said, to teach college chemistry, but I knew I had to do many years of research to get to that goal. So why not do something really cool, right? And uh, and I by that time, you know, I was into this environmental research as an undergrad, and so I really looked for places that uh, that did some environmental research. And so I ended up applying to and getting in uh, the University of California at Irvine. And what drew me there was they had a Department of Chemistry that had this environmental flavor to it. Um, there, there's chemists, there's two types of chemists. Well, there's lots of types, but there's two broad areas of chemistry. There's pure science, science for the sake of learning science and just studying whatever it is for no particular reason other than to know more things, okay? That's pure, pure science, pure chemistry. Applied chemistry, you have some purpose to it. Like you have a, 
a goal and a, a, um, a question to answer or some technology to come up with or solve. And, uh, and that really attracted me more than pure science. So at um, the University of California at Irvine, we call it UCI. At UCI, uh, the, the year before I applied, uh, the professor there, Dr. Sherwood, Sherwood Rowland, won the Nobel Prize in, uh, in chemistry for discovering that chlorofluorocarbons, otherwise known as CFCs, destroy ozone. And I remembered when I was in like eighth grade or something, them just, you know, scientists, satellites and other things, discovering that there was an ozone hole up in, up in the sky somewhere. And I remember being terrified and thinking <laughs> the world was going to end and what's going to happen. And uh, so when I saw that this type of research was being done at UCI, I was there was no doubt about it. I'm like, I have to apply there and I got to see what they're doing. And so I visited it and, uh, you know, from New York to California, you know, I saw the Pacific ocean and the beach and, and, and the university was five minutes from Newport beach. And I just fell in love with the place. I fell in love with, uh, the chemistry going on there. And so I ended up joining Dr. Roland's lab and, uh, and actually I'm his, officially his last student I'm his last PhD student because then he retired but he stuck it out through uh you know through my studies there it took a five years of studies at, at UCI and there I studied I, I got to study um let's see air chemistry so atmospheric chemistry and what we would do is we would uh go all over the world either on the ground or in NASA planes and we would collect air samples, bring them back to UCI, and analyze them through fancy machinery and figure out what, what's in this air, what components are in this air, how are they changing over time, uh, how are they for human health, and just and, and including the CFCs. So we, we studied the CFCs and how they changed. And what I ended up focusing on for my thesis was a compound called methyl bromide. And methyl bromide is a fairly simple molecule, but what it does, it's used uh, in the agricultural industry uh, for a fumigant, like think strawberry patches, and they, they, they cover the strawberry fields with like some kind of uh, garbage bag material, some kind of um, polymer, and then they inject the gas so it's trapped and then it kills uh, you know, it kills various uh, fungi and things that could make the strawberries bad. And this is used in many applications. And it's also, methyl bromide was also, uh, bio, it's biologically just naturally emitted too in oceans particularly. And so I studied this and I, and I did some computer programming as well. And I got to use something called a, let's see, a chemical transport model. Okay. And uh, that allows you to do little scenarios where you say, hey, if I emit this much of this gas, where's it going to end up? And then how concentrated is it going to be when it gets from point A to point B? So I did, uh, that's pretty much what my thesis entailed. And then I looked at also some of the, the data we had collected from the NASA airplanes and uh, some of our, our big missions, what we would call them. 
on the plane and looking at that species and what it looked like over the Pacific, over the Atlantic, and just comparing uh, its concentrations all over, pretty much all over the world. And uh, so that was what I ended up doing for my thesis. So now I'm, I'm realizing I'm, this is starting to be a long story. So uh, in 2001, I got my PhD. I also got my master's along the way in, in chemistry. And uh, I still, by the end, even though I did really exciting research, I really wanted to teach chemistry. I was ready to teach, teach chemistry on the college level. Uh, by this time, I had met the love of my life, Dr. Matt Johnston, and he... Uh, he graduated from UCI as well in the chemistry program. Um, I always thought I always thought I would date and marry like a poet or something. I thought two scientists that's just too nerdy combination, but you know, but you know you were saying earlier, I, it strikes me and correct me if I'm wrong, but Matt seems more like a pure scientist. Is that as as opposed to uh, like you said the application scientist? Correct. So yeah. So I think so my pure husband, scientists are almost there's something poetic about that. Right. Maybe we're just different enough yeah. flavors of chemistry. It just works. But yeah, he and he worked in a, an organic chemistry lab making making new crystals. So he was just making new molecules just to make new molecules. Why not? And uh, and then characterize them and see see what if they could do anything, you know, for humanity. And so that's <laughs> that's what he did. And anyway, so by this time, Matt had already graduated and wanted to teach at a four year college. And so Lewis Clark State College hired him uh, right out of right out of grad school. And uh, as he was leaving California, he knew that he better put a ring on it. And so he did, <laughs> he, you know, he proposed and I said, yes. And so I followed him a year after, um, to, to Idaho and, and we got, we were married actually in Buffalo, New York, but then, then we, we, we came back to, to Idaho here in Lewiston. And what did you, uh, what did you think when he said, Hey, I, I really love you. Um, come to Idaho with me. <laughs> yeah. I was a little nervous. The first thing I thought was we, we both want to teach, at a four-year institution, primarily undergrads, I said, I thought to myself, is this ever going to work where we're both going to be able to find jobs? It's the two-body problem when you're when you, trying to find very particular jobs in a small place. And I, I honestly didn't think it was going to work. <laughs> I thought maybe I would have to, you know, not have to, but but maybe I would end up teaching high school or doing something different. Like, I wasn't sure. And so the the miraculous thing is that that summer, uh, right after we were married, uh, Ed Miller, Dr. Ed Miller, offered me a job to as a visiting professor because someone just retired, and I, I said of course. So I did that, that for two years at, at LCSC, and uh, then that that position expired, and they wanted to hire someone full time, but by then I had two kids. And I just loved them to, to pieces. And I thought, you know what? I don't really want to work full time right now. And uh, but I continued to adjunct, uh, which is part time, uh, you know, course by course, kind of by hire for the college. And I, I taught natural sciences during that time and physical chemistry. Turns out there's not a lot of physical chemistry experts in this region. So uh, that made me. Uh, 
have a little a little niche in, in, at LCSC for that. And um, so I did I did this adjunct gig for about ten years. And, uh, then my, then by then I had four kids, so they multiply. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, and then I have four and by the time the youngest was, uh, ready for school, I had a real itch to just get back into full-time teaching. And unfortunately, you know, for chemists, you know, we get hired based on our skill set. And I was, I'm an analytical chemist, also an atmospheric chemist, but, uh, the big branch would be analytical chemistry. And uh, they already had an analytical chemist at LC. So I um, I didn't think another position would end up opening at LCSC for a long time. So what I did is then I, I converted my New York State secondary certificate to a Washington and an Idaho teaching certificate. And I got hired by a Soton Middle School to teach science, to teach seventh and eighth grade science, ninth, ninth grade algebra. I did that for two years, loved it. I, by this time, I'm a mom, I'm veteran, I know how to command <laughs> a classroom. So I really loved that job. Planned to stay there, you know, indefinitely. And then the analytical chemist decided to move to Wazoo, which oh. is Washington State University. There you go. And uh, so the opening came that I didn't think would ever open again. Oh, and great. so, yeah, it was too, it was too good to pass up, even though I loved teaching middle school. And, and you actually uh, had my brother Galen for a little bit at a Soton. I did. He, I don't want to say anything publicly, oh, you, but you he, go for it. He was a, he was a handful. He could be a handful. He, he made my job both interesting and hard at the same time, but he was so funny. Yeah. 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 Your brother. Oh my goodness. Yeah. He was, he was. So these middle schoolers are, I mean, no offense to college students, but they're real dynamic. They're real fun. They could drive you crazy, but uh, just every day is an adventure with them. And I, and I love, I honestly loved it. Uh, but so it was sad for me to go and it was a, a big decision, but I came back to the college and, uh, I've, I've been, that was 2015. So I started at the college 2001, left around 2013, took a two year hiatus, came back, uh, at, but this time as a tenure track, uh, chemist. And so that was a big difference and a big deal. And that allowed me some time and flexibility in my schedule to start a research group. So that's kind of to the present day. Now I'm an associate professor of chemistry at Lewis Clark State College. And I run an air research group there, kind of continuing what I learned in graduate school and applying that to local studies. Right. So there you are. <laughs> yeah. And I was uh, lucky enough to be a part of that research group for, I think it was, I, it was hard because I think I started in the summer. So it was like two and a half years or one and a half years. It was some time. It was a lot of fun though. Um, that was, I mean, it was through that that I, it's really important for students because it was through that that I got to meet my graduate school advisor and it really helped me, I feel, get a place in graduate school to actually do some research. But not only that, but we got to travel around. I mean, we went to Boise, Moscow for conferences. I know we went to um, New Orleans that one time. That was Mm -hmm. a lot of fun. And unfortunately now I think conferences are uh, shut down at the moment or online or 
something. Yeah, not now. In the age of COVID, uh, conferences are mostly virtual. Yeah, and saves a lot of travel money, but it's it's just not quite the same experience. But it's better than nothing, right? right. So <laughs> it's always nice when you can go after the poster presentations or after somebody gets done speaking and go, "Hey, I had this question about your research," and they're right there, and you can speak with them face to face. But but yeah, it is better than absolutely nothing. Cool. Well, well, thanks for filling us in on that background. It was it was really cool to hear kind of your story as to how you ended up here in the valley. And um, I always think it's cool to shine a light on all the amazing professors that are at LC that have this really cool back history of stuff that they've done and been a part of, um, such as yourself. So that's really cool. Yeah, we've had uh, Amy Canfield on as well, mm-hmm. and that was really fun getting to know her and what oh, she does. That, she's fabulous, too. No, I I, I am amazed because I, I kind of don't know how I ended up here. <laughs> well, I do. It, it's it's by chance. It's, it's because of my husband. And uh, But I didn't even know where Lewis denied. I wouldn't even be able to tell you sure. 20 years ago where Lewis in Idaho was or even where Hell's Canyon was, I wouldn't have known those things. You know, the I had Grand Canyon on my mind or Niagara Falls. You know, those are kind of my <laughs> points of interest. But uh, so, no, I imagined myself staying in New England area, you know, and so you just never know where life is going to take you, where jobs are going to take you. And my grandmother and my family, uh, of course, they, they weren't really big fans of me being on the opposite side of the country. But, uh, you know, my grandmother was a wise woman and uh, she said, well, you got to go where the bread is. (laughs) (laughs) And it's true. You got to find a place where you can really live your passion. And uh, by not being so constrained uh, to locale, you know, I found a beautiful place here in Lewiston, Idaho. Yeah. And Drew and I are just impressed at the quality of teaching and faculty at LCSE. I mean, and it's especially grown, I, I'm sure, over the past, oh, I sense it's open. I'm sure it just keeps getting better and better. Of course, there's been some budget cuts recently. We can talk about those if you want to, but that's not our focus today. Um <laughs> You found a beautiful place in Lewiston, but I'm sure uh, you noticed that there tends to be a lingering smell in the air. (laughs) And as my T-shirt on the wall over there says, uh, Lewiston, it smells like money. Um, (laughs) But maybe we could go into a little bit more detail on what that actual smell is and maybe some of the other constituents of of that smell. Before we dive into that, you said you started this research group kind of um, as a continuation of what you learned in grad school. So how did how did that all get started? I know you, you had an idea. I want to do air research. You have a, a great reason for it with the pulp paper mill. And mm-hmm. of course, there's other, um, you know, there's other industries around here contributing to some of the what's going into the air as well. the well. air settles in a unique way here, right? Because we're in the valley. So oh, in that valley. Yeah, there should be... situated some, oddly. Yeah, you get some of those inversions in the winter where that um, cool air will settle in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so you wanted to do a research group. How do you go about that? Because you need funding, you need equipment. Uh, so what kind of equipment did you need and how did you get funding for that? Right. So the, 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 the nice thing about my 
background as an analytical chemist is we use instrumentation. And by being hired as the analytical chemist at Lewis Clark State, I, um, I, I have access and, and I'm supposed to manage that lab and, and use it for teaching. And so I was aware uh, kind of previously, because I had experience at LC, that, uh, you know, what kind of equipment they already had. And I knew that it wasn't quite enough to do the air studies. And um, there's some ways you can get around it with the existing equipment. But I knew that it was, you know, I needed more equipment. And of course, just like anything else, specialty equipment was very expensive. And so when I got hired, this is typical, especially at research universities, you can request some startup funds to get uh, your research going. And so at that time, um, I had really no idea exactly how much things are going to cost. But I said, you know, I'm probably going to need at least $10,000 in the lab to, to purchase new equipment. And there was a long pause at the end of the other line that, you know, they were when they were talking to me, they, but they said, you know, we have this uh, funding that funnels through the college. It's called Embry. And with the Embry funds, we could probably cover your, your new equipment, no problem. They, they couldn't guarantee me exactly, you know, the amount or anything, but they said, you know, that should be a good avenue for you. And so I said, okay. And we agreed to the terms of hiring and such. And so, uh, Dr. Um, actually, Dr. Matt Johnston uh, and uh, Jane Finan, Professor Jane Finan, were the two coordinators for this large grant. And I, formerly, I had paid really no attention to it as an adjunct. I didn't, you know, I I didn't have time or interest in research, so I didn't really know much about it. So, um, due to conflict of interest. I, I didn't really interact with Matt at all, but I, uh, you know, I, I talked to Professor Finan and I said, well, what, how do, how do I apply for some of this funding? And so I was able to apply internally. We have some funds that come directly to LC from Embry. Now, Embry, let me tell you what, it's a long acronym. It's called the IDEA Network of Biomedical research excellence and it's it's funded by the national institute of health which is your federal tax dollars at work for science you know sometimes pure science sometimes applied uh embry really is focused on the biomedical end and so i thought well wow well this fits my research because i am interested in how air affects people's health, you know, what type of things you're breathing and how that affects your health. So while I'm not like a cellular, you know, uh, microbiologist or, or a, you know, a cell biologist, I knew that I could, I could use this type of funding to start answering questions that I wanted to answer. And so I was granted the funding and at first it started small, like, yeah, you and a student could do some you know, half-time work over a summer, okay? Oh, and then it grew to, you know, here's the the add-on instrumentation that costs $30,000. We're going to pay for that for you. And uh, and so on and so forth. So it started small. 
but this piece of equipment is called a thermal desorption unit, and that was key. And getting uh, our sampler tubes, they're called thermal desorption tubes, getting those two pieces of equipment and then adding it to the existing equipment in the lab was what we needed to get started. And so it started small with one student. His name's John Andrew. I don't know if you remember John, Brian. I've uh, I've met him a couple times, but I think he left right before I, I joined. Okay. Yeah. So he's currently, uh, I think, third year in med school. And uh, anyway, great guy. But it started with one student. And then over time, you know, it was three students. And then five students and then seven students and and now I'm up to 10 students um, and so I probably I haven't gotten the, the current sum but it's probably about 25 plus students have been through the lab with some kind of research experience uh, under my mentorship and I've loved it I think they learn a lot uh, and then they can use that experience to help propel them into a, a real job when they graduate or medical school or graduate school like Brian. Uh, I have another student, Damien Ketcherside, that just went uh, to University of Montana in Missoula to study actually atmospheric chemistry as well. So there's lots of different avenues, and I've had biologists that come in the lab, and they end up, um, some of them end up going to graduate school for biology So uh, or met. A lot medical of them want to find a medical school, right? So uh, it's been a great experience. It, it, we're about five years running now, uh, the, the lab groups. So I'd say born in 2016 <laughs> or so. And uh, that funding, without that funding, there's no way I could do this research. So funding is, a, is key. And my most recent funding is called a developmental research project. And that funding, I was awarded... Uh, let's see, about $250,000 over two years. And that pays for everything from student salary, uh, my summer salary, equipment, travel, mail back and forth, you know, mailing air tubes to remote locations and, and such. So it seems like a lot of money. At first, it seemed like a lot of money for me. And uh, then it it goes away really quickly once you start, you know, you hiring students and buying equipment, but it's definitely enough to get a robust research program. So uh, what that study is focuses on is uh, the volatile organic compounds, which is a fancy name for a specific type of air pollutant, uh, how those, um, the what the amounts are, and how they affect human health, especially with regards to wildfires. So I've I, um, I've done a local study in my beginning years of Embry, and I'm sure we can talk about that soon. But right now, I'm I'm focused on the wildfire smoke specifically. Right, which of course, a couple of years ago, it was probably one of the worst years we've had in a long time. Yeah, I think I it mean, was we 2016, in. right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, and then yeah, 2018 was 18. a. It was a particularly bad year. It was the first day of classes, I believe, and it, we were just socked in smoke in the valley. And valleys, you know, like you said, they, they can get these air inversions where just things settle. And smoke tends to settle in valleys. And then 
it doesn't, you know, if you get a high pressure system, it's not going anywhere. It just sits there for mm-hmm. days or weeks. Which is exactly what it did. That was terrible. I know that sparked a lot of interest in smoke research that year. I know at WSU it got up and running, and that's exactly what Damien's doing in Montana is studying smoke. Right. Um, so that's huge. Um, I know you were talking about getting those, those, that funding, uh, for, for the equipment, which is really important. Cause I know when I was, when I was a part of your group, I got, um, a lot of the funding I got myself was through grants. I, I think I got an Inbri. I know I got something called Herc. Um, and then I think there might've been one more. Um, yeah, but- you had, um, you had a, EPSCORE. EPSCORE, that too. was it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we got a lot of equipment for the lab and it's not like, um, getting the right equipment's important because you want to follow as least as close as you can EPA standard methods. And so it's like when you're out measuring, whether it's wildfire smoke or some of the sulfur compounds or other VOCs that you measure in the Valley, there's certain ways that you want to do it that are just like everyone else's methods. So you can kind of compare because if everyone's doing their own thing, you're going to get it's hard to compare and say, look at what the levels are and have anyone kind of, you know, it's, it's harder to dispute when you're using the standard method, which is kind of what we were doing at LC. Right. Yeah. We use an, e, uh, an EPA method. It's, it's called TO17 is at, and uh, 325 A and B, which means nothing to most of the listeners, but, uh, Rest assured, they're, they're standard protocols. So like Brian said, uh, so that you you can trust the results, that right. they're certified techniques that we know work. Hey everyone, just wanted to take a quick break to tell you about our new Patreon account. That's right, OSP fans, you can now directly help us fund this show and get access to exclusive content. For more information and to learn how you can support the show, head to patreon.com slash oldspiralpodcast. Now back to the show. And for this, uh, the smoke, the um, wildfire smoke stuff, are you using those thermal desorption tubes as well? Correct. Yeah, we use the same uh, technology, but in addition, we uh, particulate matter is, right. is a big deal in smoke. So we have actually a particulate uh, matter counter actually on campus now, and it's part of a network of these relatively inexpensive monitors. So like you or I could buy one for our house. You could have it indoor or outdoor. They're a couple hundred dollars, but they're called purple air. And so if you Google purple air, you can find a map of, well, probably the world, but of the US, if you zoom in and find Lewiston, you'll see that we have a little monitor and then you can see if it's red or green or yellow and it gives you an indication of how much particles are in the air which are uh, those affect uh people's breathing and they those particles can deposit on lung tissue so they're 
yeah, it's people, essentially smoke. Yeah, well, right? people probably know that as the air quality index. I know there's right. a few things that go into the air quality index, but one of those big things is particulate matter. I'm sure listeners have heard of PM10 or PM2.5, which are kind of the two categories of the particulate matter that you'd look at. Um, PM2.5 is small enough that it'll go into the little spaces in your lungs mm. and kind of yeah. block out the oxygen. Right. So that's really neat that you're kind of going with the uh, with the wildfire. Um, mm-hmm. at, I think this year's been pretty easy for wildfires. I know we just had one across the river, across from Chief Timothy. Uh, if you go some places in the valley, you can actually see where it burned. Right. Um, yeah. So we were able to sample that night. Like I was actually just uh, social distancing with a couple friends uh, in the evening. It was Sunday night and. One of them said had been on the river and she said, well, there was a fire by Chief Timothy. And I said, whoa, 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 hold on. Is it still going on? And and she said, oh, I'm sure they they put it out by now. And then I then like literally as I spoke, one of my students, his name is Eli, he calls me. He's like, there's a fire on the hill and I see it. (laughs) (laughs) And he said, I'm going to go to the lab. I'm going to get some samples. I said, "Okay, I'll be right there. So I excused myself from uh, the small gathering and I um, uh, so we split up in two different areas. And so he was down right on Highway 12, right by uh, Chief Timothy. And then I went up kind of by the Clarkston Heights, you know, up Evans Road and Piola back up there. And uh, so we were able to get several samples. And then the next day I did a little roundabout from Uniontown. I went down, now I can't, I won't be able to think of the road, but it's a canyon road. It's not Wauwai Road, but it's it's a closer, it's it's out of Uniontown. And it goes all the way back down to, um, to, to Wauwai Road. I think I'm pronouncing that right. I, no one actually knows how it's pronounced. Wauwai? Wauwai? I have no idea. Yeah, I'm not Someone was having a joke when they named that. So anyway, we were so I so although you know we understand the severity of fires and the harm they can do, when we see one, it's like we feel like we need to get out there and measuring the smoke because they don't last very long, and it's it's rare to have a fire in your own backyard. So then then we we rushed to get to there. So we did get several samples, and we're hoping that that can tell us a little bit about the composition of that fire. Cool. Yeah, yeah, and we have been pretty fortunate this year, at least locally, that uh, we haven't had too many fires. I think Inslee just declared a state of emergency in Washington for forest fires um, around the Olympic Olympic Peninsula and that area. But yeah, around here we've been lucky, and I've been kind of surprised with as green as everything has been this year that um, we didn't have as many fires. I figured with that much growth we would have seen more, but we've been lucky so far. Yeah. Um, so wildfire stuff, that's really interesting. Um, but what what's neat is you guys, we, you, all of us in the lab, we've got a paper published. All, you know, it's in press, as you were saying earlier. But um, we've got a paper written about, uh, not about wildfires, but just about some of those VOCs and sulfur compounds in the valley. And it's been peer-reviewed. 
and uh, and it's actually in press, and you can find it online if anybody wants to go read it. But um, can you talk to us a little bit about what the paper's called and what that whole process was like of writing and peer revision? Sure, I sure can. Now the title is so long. You're looking it up right. Now. <laughs> that <laughs> I've is. got a I've got a double check so I don't well, miss. And not myself. only that, but with all the posters and everything that everyone does, there's so many titles. Right. Yeah. Right. So so this this uh, scientific publication is called Observations of Volatile Organic and Sulfur Compounds in Ambient Air and Health Risk Assessment near a paper mill in rural Idaho, USA. So this, it's, it's, it's about to be published. It's online currently. It will be in paper form uh, very soon. It's in the journal called Atmospheric Pollution Research, and it's an international journal. So uh, that's why we had to say USA, because not everybody will know what Idaho is. And so USA, most people <laughs> internationally will know that. And uh, anyway, so that this... This is the culmination of two years of active research, one year of startup research, just getting to the point of being able to actually do the research, and then probably a year and a half of writing and peer review. And so it's really what amounts to probably a four-year journey or so, and uh, all done by myself and undergraduate researchers. So this in itself is a huge accomplishment uh, because first of all, um, not everybody can do undergraduate research as an undergraduate or, or it might be very selective depending on what institution you're at. And then to do a high enough quality of research and caliber that it's publishable is another feat in itself. And so this required a 12-member team. Like this was 12 undergraduates over those four years. And in the, the, the lead author is Philip Scott. And uh, but as he will freely admit, uh, he just happened to be the senior student at the right time where he could help me finish writing this because the original manuscript was actually started by Brian Grimm right here and and, and Melanie Menanguil right. and who else uh, Damien Ketcherside and I don't know if Brandy worked on it as well or not um, well maybe not so much as the writing but definitely sure. the original research but yes I remember Damien and Melanie and I um, we each took some different sections and did a little bit of writing and got it started I remember that right so you all started it and so Philip, we call him Sam, but he ended up, you know, putting the period on the sentence. So it's so, a, uh, but it, it was definitely a mutual effort, a team effort. And uh, again, 12 undergraduates and myself. So uh, I'm very proud of the accomplishments of, of the undergraduate team. And again, I, I don't know if I say this to my group, but I should, is that they're doing graduate level research now do they is their knowledge graduate level maybe not quite yet right but the but the techniques and the studies they're doing are that graduate level or just what we call professional research grade 
And uh, so I'm very, very proud of all of them. So how, so how, uh, how did it come to be, so to speak? Well, uh, it started off with the question, uh, you know, what, what is that smell? You know, when I moved here, right, um, we, we, the, the, the closest thing I could think of was cabbage patch or rotten egg. And, yeah, and yeah. I thought, what is going on in this town? You know, and it's so beautiful. Like Lewiston is so beautiful. Right. And so to me, it was just like, it could be a 10 and just that smell maybe made it, I don't know, just a notch down, maybe nine or well, eight apparently or something. The, that and smell so, isn't unique to Lewiston. I guess it's all paper mills, which I, I kind of thought was just like a, it's just part Lewiston of that Friedel's that craft way. paper process. Yeah. Right. They use hydrogen sulfide to break down the, uh, bark the wood chips not the bark mm-hmm. but the wood all uh, the lignin and cellulose or whatever it's been a while since i've looked at it but right right yeah and there's so it's a characteristic uh smell of paper mill production and so it's not specific to lewiston i i say any paper mill town you go to you will smell this smell it may be a little bit varied uh you know the, the specific smell but uh it's that sulfury smell and uh when i moved here i kind of asked around and, and i said well well what's in it and somebody told me methyl mercaptan some at least finally somebody most people don't know but then one intelligible person told me methyl mercaptan i can't remember who that was <laughs> but then i looked up i had to look up that molecule because i'm like what is methyl mercaptan and it's an or it has carbon hydrogen and sulfur basically and it's a pretty simple molecule and uh i thought oh okay well is that bad for you you know is that gonna cause any any poor effects and i was always told by people well it smells really bad but it's mostly steam and it's not going to hurt you. And uh, yeah, they're correct, right? Like when you combust a car, gasoline, that's mostly steam and it's mostly CO2. But it's a whole lot of other little things that can add up to, you know, say sub 1%. Yeah. And as we all know with poisons, you know, you don't need a hundred percent of poison to kill you. You just need like a fraction of a percent or even a part per trillion of a poison can kill you. So, um, so that wasn't really, when someone says it's mostly this for an analytical chemist, that's meaningless. Yeah. Right. (laughs) I mean, we're looking at one part, you know, a hundred parts per billion or even lower parts per trillion. I mean, that's nothing. Right. We could say your body is mostly water. But we know our body acts a lot, you know, it's got very many molecules that are, are important besides water, right, to make right. everything run and function. So uh, so that was the impetus was I, w- I was just honestly just curious, is this air in loose and is, it's, it's definitely smelly. Is it enough to cause any, any harm? And I really wanted to know what molecules are, are in this air. So we started using a technique called uh, thermal desorption gas chromatography, mass spectrometry. I'll I'll give it a plain and simple terms. We catch air uh, through a sorbent. So let's, let's say it's just like like a, it's like a filter. It's kind of like activated charcoal almost. Right. It's like a fancy activated charcoal. It's like a fancy activated charcoal. In like a stainless steel straw, a short one. Yeah. So there are these small things that you can concentrate 
the, the air pollutants, the oxygen and the nitrogen, which are 99% of your air, they're going to go out uh, and, and not be collected by, by our air sampler, by our filter. Uh, but the pollutants will mostly stick on. Now, I have to put a disclaimer. I don't analyze all compounds in the air, right? So there are hundreds and thousands of molecules. But what I was concerned with were air toxins and sulfides. And so those are, are able, we're able to measure using our technique and, excuse me. <laughs> Sorry, visitor there. Um, so we, we're able to use this technique and we to get what we call grab samples. And the grab samples, we catch the air, we bring them back to the lab, and we heat up the tube. And then the tube releases the gases. Which and then those gases travel into this uh, oven where they go through this little column it's actually a very long column, but it's very skinny. And the gases get separated there. And from the separation unit, then they go into a mass detection unit. And the mass detection is like a fingerprint. So the way it works is each gas has a special fingerprint or mass spectra, as we call it. And so you can identify each one. All right. And uh, then, of course, we have to use things called standards, which we run through the instruments so of known quantity. So we can figure out how much of the unknown is in this air sample. And so that's kind of the, the basis of the technique. And uh, the very first sample that I ran that had dimethyl disulfide, I was so ecstatic just to see that there was something there that it was a sulfide and I knew I could recognize that. And so from there, we, we, now we do over a hundred compounds, but um, when we first started, we did about 50, 50 different air toxic compounds, some of which cause cancer, uh, some of them don't. So the sulfur compounds end up being more irritants. They probably won't kill you unless they're like, you know, super high concentration from a factory pipe or something, but in the ambient air, they dilute enough. They might irritate your eyes or skin, um, maybe cause some lung irritation, depending if, you know, if you're a sensitive group or not. Uh, I know I am a sensitive group. And uh, the other compounds that are carcinogenic, which means they cause, they may cause cancer. Now, just because something can cause cancer, again, a disclaimer, doesn't mean it will in every individual, right? And so some of those compounds include benzene, chloroform, carbon tetrachloride, to name a few. And uh, those may not, again, those names might not mean anything to you. For a chemist, that's like the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, <laughs> and like Nirvana, right? Or, or something. You know? Yeah, like that people. sounds about right. Right, yeah. Like you would know, you would know those, those well, who those compounds were. Uh, if you were a chemist, but at any rate, uh, what the study showed, we, we collected over 800 samples over two years, over, you know, different days, different seasons, different times of the day, different locations around the valley. So like up to 10 locations from Lewiston Hill all the way to Lapway 
to Sunset and the Orchards to LCSC campus, so all over town and Clarkston. Don't want to forget Clarkston. And uh, so the 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 results were a little. I mean, a little surprising because we we saw a lot of the sulfites, we saw a lot of benzene, chloroform, and a little bit of carbon tetrachloride. And so when I say a lot, what I really mean is the part per billion. So that means uh, if someone says you're one in a million, right? then you'd be a lot more than this billion. So this is saying one in a billion is if there's a billion molecules, one of them is this component. Right. So it is super small, super dilute. But again, in the air chemistry realm, these a part per billion is actually a decent amount. It is, okay? yeah. Yeah. It's, I, if, you, if parts per million would be a lot more, right? It'd be a thousand fold bigger. And that part per million concentrations would probably kill you like on the spot of these compounds. But part per billion is sort of tolerable and uh, expected probably in industrial areas and things. Um, so it wasn't that surprising, but what what we did, what we ended up doing is I worked with uh, Dr. Norka Pat. Uh, Patton from the Idaho Department of Environmental Quality, which is otherwise known as the IDEQ. They're the people that have a monitor in in town that that does the particulate monitoring. Monitoring, and they they have stations all over the state. Uh, they IDEQ is essentially EPA's state agency. Okay. And so she helped me use USA EPA techniques to figure out the health risk to humans based on the concentrations we saw during the two-year study. And so there's a lot of math involved, uh, and I'm not going to go into that. There's some formulas. They're in the paper. Our listeners, thank you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but... What it comes down to is the result. The result will tell you how many cancers per million people these air concentrations will cause, okay? And you do this per molecule, and then you add up all the, the you know, those totals to get like a sum, to get a sum of cancers that could could potentially be caused per million people. Now I realize not there's not a million people that live in Lewiston, Idaho, but this is sort of the benchmark of comparison. So one in a million is what we what EPA calls a low risk, very low risk of cancer. And but when you go to 10 extra cancers per million, then you get to low risk. And when you get to 100, you get to moderate risk and et cetera, et cetera, as you kind of go up this ladder of, of tens, right? Yeah, sure. And go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say, yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. And so what we concluded was depending on the type of sample we collected, we collected grab samples, which are 10-minute samples from all over the place. And then we had what we call passive samples that sat at one location well, several locations actually, but for like two weeks at a time. So it's it's an averaged 
versus like a, a snapshot. Okay, so a snapshot are the grab samples, averaged, long-term are these passive samplers. And same technique, just, just slightly different collection times. And uh, what we found was it was anywhere from 2 to 11 extra cancers per million people. Okay, uh, and so EPA still considers that very low to low risk. So that's good news for LC Valley yeah, 100%. is that we're not in a high risk group due to the air concentrations that, uh, that we're seeing of these toxics. And uh, but, you know, you do have do have to have disclaimers, right, that, again, if you extrapolate this to the population of the valley and surrounding areas, you know, if we go to the maximum of 11 per million, it's like one per hundred thousand people. Right. So, again, it puts things in perspective. It kind of gives you an idea that that even though we are seeing things like chloroform, sulfides, benzene, many of these which are from paper mill manufacturing, not all of them. Benzene is is an industrial pollutant from everything from cars to right to to other industries. So just you driving your car is going to make some benzene. Um, so keeping that in mind, uh, it, it's actually really reassuring that even though we, we do, we are able to detect and see air toxics in the valley, they're not high enough concentrations to be of alarm. And in fact, uh, at least this initial study, it, it seems like they shouldn't be a health problem, which is really good news. So did you find in your research that these toxins sort of gathered in certain areas throughout the valley or, um, I mean, even outside the valley. I know you talked about measuring on the hill and, and near Lapway there, which is several miles away. Um, or was it kind of spread out on an average? Yeah, so of the 10 sites, I we ended up classifying because uh, you asked about the writing process, which I didn't quite even get to yet. But uh, when we submitted this research, when we wrote it all up and submitted it uh, for peer review to a journal, one of the comments of the peer reviewers, again, this is an international journal, so they saw these 10 locations. They didn't know which ones were in the city, which ones were out of the city, which you know they didn't have any perspective locally. So we labeled several, we labeled several of these, all of the locations as either a background, um, I think what we call city or city center. Can't remember exactly um, the, the symbols we used, uh, but, but those were the two main ones. And uh, the other one was like outside of the area. So we had some sampling going on in Boise, Coeur d'Alene, Spokane as comparison. So those would be like other, right, you know, other areas. So we had background, city, and other. And so we called the hill background, and we called Lapway background uh, because what we saw was those, and, and those are just a couple of the sites that are on the top of my head, but they were f far enough removed that uh, from the main industrial polluter of the valley, which is primarily the paper mill, but there are others that are in more central to downtown area 
that uh, we didn't see high levels there. There were very low levels on the hill and very low levels out in Lapway. And we saw most of the levels concentrated either near the mill or or near like just downtown Lewiston, Clarkston. So in those areas, it was, was much more concentrated than getting farther away from the city centers and from the industrial centers. Yeah, I remember being in Lapway and analyzing some of those samples sometimes, and they seem to be, and again, just on a case-by-case basis, you don't want to look necessarily at individual samples. It's best to look at it all at a whole. But they seem to be much cleaner than, than say, taking. We had one down by that bridge uh, by Pepsi Park. Hmm. Well, that's right. cool. That's cool to learn that. We're not sort of passing the buck with our externalities. Um, is there is there sort of regulations and stuff that you guys were aware of before your research that potlatch was supposed to, or not potlatch, I'm sorry, Clearwater <laughs> Paper? <laughs> You've definitely lived here your whole life. <laughs> yeah. um, the so, Clearwater Paper was supposed to be or that I think you're trying to noting. kind of look at? Yeah, sorry, Drew. Oh, I think ahead. it's worth noting that the smell anyway has gotten a lot better not only in like the last 10 years but in like the last 30 years and what's caused that uh just new equipment at the mill so i believe it was in like 2015 did they get kind of cited with an epa violation i don't remember exactly what it was but i think they got hit with a clean air act violation and they've upgraded their equipment fairly recently yeah i want to say the equipment upgrade might have been 2000 2018, maybe? Yeah, it might have been. I'm trying to remember But they spent millions of dollars upgrading their equipment. Yeah, we do cite that in the paper. So if you want full details, a little bit of history of what other research has been done in the Valley, we do review that in our paper. But no, the the paper writing process starts with, you you have methods, right? First, you have a question. It's really goes along with the, I hate to be cheesy, but the scientific method we all learn in school, It's not right? cheesy. It's important. There's a reason. <laughs> I know. But, uh, but anyway, but you start off with a question or a hypothesis. For us, it was more of a question, like what's, what's in this hair? And then you, you develop methods, which we did, and that equipment sponsored by Idaho Embry really helped. And then, and then you do the research, you get the data, you collect the data, you process it. There's a lot of statistical analysis that goes in with that. And uh, not to mention just we individually look at every single sample and every hundreds single and hundreds of samples. Compound. Yeah. So that takes lots of student time. And then then you have to look at it all together and try to find patterns. So that's I think that's the biggest jump for students is figuring out how to do that because you don't, I mean, you're supposed to be learning that stuff in your science classes, but you don't get exposed to real data usually. And so then you got to look at data and see, well, is this meaningful? Is this weird? Is it normal? Like what's out of the box? What's not? And uh, yeah, what yeah. what would you say about that, Brian? Well, I think when we kind of skirted around your question, as far as regulations for some of these compounds go, those are set by the AP, EPA and Clearwater Paper and the other stuff. They have employees that monitor exactly yeah. what's coming out from the source. And that was that was going to be my next question is, do they have like a team of atmosphere? It's, those are called environmental engineers. Mm-hmm. And uh, hopefully a position opens uh, someday and I can apply for it. 
it. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, that's what I do. Um, but so what Nancy was kind of getting at and what I learned while I was there is on paper, you're like, okay, here's an emitter and it's at this location. Maybe I, the best way to mathematically do it is get samples you know, at this radius and further out radiuses so you can really pinpoint exactly what's going on. But then the real world comes in and you say, oh, well, I can't actually take samples here because I can't get there because it's private land. Or maybe they don't want to work with us so we can't get right on the spot that I want to go to. Mm -hmm. And then you've got um, other factors coming in like... um, topography and wind and time of day and so like there's day night patterns and for an undergraduate who's you know just working on this 10 to 20 hours a week and then Not dealing with all the, their other the classes sort of and maybe a job yeah exactly so that's you know we pinpointed what's in the air and it's good to know and i think that was a really smart thing to do is working with the health person to say kind of just from what we're seeing what's the health thing for us to actually pinpoint exactly what's coming from where is is kind of a that's a that's a big big old thing to do hmm. a lot harder gotcha right and also drew to to expand on that uh is that each industry that emits any air pollutant over a specific amount has to apply for a permit uh with the ideq so the epa and uh then they get approved and I believe there's self-monitoring. So I believe they have to purchase, the industry themselves has to purchase the equipment to self-monitor, but then the IDEQ oversees that and checks on it, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. But I don't, I don't do that directly. I have friends that do that. They audit and they, you know, they, they visit these places and, and things. But so I don't have direct experience, but I believe that's how the process yeah. I'm interested in how all that shakes out because, you know, you talk about these people that kind of safeguard that um, to make sure that the, the data is accurate. And um, when, when you've got self-monitoring, I feel like it leaves room for (laughs) people to kind of fudge the numbers in their favor, potentially. Potentially. Yeah. And and like Nancy said, they are monitored, right. You know, over, overseen. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Uh, well, you mentioned the peer review process, and obviously the last step of that peer review process is to communicate what you've learned, and uh, you've done that in the paper and being on our show, which is awesome. Thank you. But getting what we've kind of taken from the study out to the general public, I know you've done a couple Q&As. Um, can you kind of tell us about that and maybe what some of the public response was to what you were what you were doing? And I know it's not necessarily all... You just tell us about the Q&As maybe you've done in the past. Well, to, so to be honest, so this this paper has just come out in July uh, and uh, will be finalized and impressed uh, probably sometime this month. And so we, we haven't really had an opportunity for, uh, or I guess, scientists in general, um, they're not really good at self-advertising. So we do our job, we get it published, and we think life is complete after that because now all the scientists know what we're up to. But there is that public uh, that public piece where the public, this information may be useful to them. And so that hasn't happened yet with this paper. So this is the first public forum that, um, that I've spoken about it. 
but um, I have uh, I have sent letters to the to the sampling sites, people that have helped us during the study, so that they know the results. Uh, at least one private residence helped us, and um, you know some different colleges like um, LCSCs. Uh, Coeur d'Alene branch helped us, and then EWU, Eastern Washington University, helped us in Spokane. The IDEQ helped us in Boise. So there's all these partners we had, and they're um, acknowledged, of course. But um, really, the only other Q&A type time is when I'm in a in a conference type setting or at the college. So I, I have talked about things to my classes. Um, or I've, I've given actually like a public talk once or twice on campus, but, uh, really this is pretty new. Um, right. I thought you what, had done something at the library before, maybe on a different topic. Oh, that was on climate change, oh, yeah. which I'm also, uh, it, I, I wouldn't call myself a climatologist, but I am an atmospheric chemist. So I, I do specialize in greenhouse gases which caused climate change. So so that's another area of my expertise. So now I, I've given some climate change forums at, at the public library. But uh, so to, I guess to answer your question is that usually um, local, the local community is very interested because they're always, I think it's just a general natural curiosity. If you smell something, you wanna know if that's gonna affect you negatively or right. not. Um, and so it, it does, our research is very interesting to the public and I'm always happy to talk about it, but, uh, there hasn't been, um, this hasn't been newsworthy quite yet, mainly because, um, I don't know how the news would know unless I told them. So I probably need to be a better advocate, <laughs> but this is a great first start, uh, with your, with your podcast. Yeah. Well, you'll have to talk to Amy Canfield cause I know, uh, Joel, her partner, works at the Tribune, so mm -hmm, mm -hmm. maybe she'll leak it for you. <laughs> yeah, well, and and I'm and I'm sure LCSC they do publicize sometimes uh, when grants are received by faculty and such. So it may it may be of interest to the college news as well. Yeah. So. Well, that is extremely interesting, and uh, what LCSC does and all of its faculty, you included, are doing for the Valley as far as giving the students opportunities to be involved in this level of research is just incredible. And it's part of what makes this town the the great place that we think it is and the whole reason for this podcast itself uh, just, you know, exactly like you thought before you came here, what, what what is Lewiston for a town of thirty to fifty thousand people, depending on where you're counting? Um, that's pretty impressive. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, kind of like like what I was saying earlier. It's just always amazing to me to look at what quality of education you can receive from LC across all departments. You know, not not just. Um, sort of the ones that Brian and I have been fortunate enough to be a part of, but seemingly every, every aspect of that school, um, from what I can gather. And, uh, I was happy to be a part of it. Right. Yeah. I, the, our president Pemberton, uh, of LCSC, I, I believe I've heard her say, and uh, that LC 
is the gem, the hidden gem of Idaho. It's really this special place that not a lot of people know about just because, you know, we're in a more rural region. We're not Boise. Right? We're not Moscow. <laughs> but uh, but what we do here, we do it really well. And this type of place attracts really good faculty and keeps them here because the quality of life, you think about it, it's affordable here. It's beautiful. It's relatively quiet and uh, inspiring. It's really a, a, this confluence is so unique. And I think when people visit here, if you're not from here, you're really wowed. You know, it's definitely a spectacular place. And if you've grown up here, you may take that for granted. <laughs> but uh, when when my when my parents and my grandmother came to visit, they were the first thing they noticed were the hills. And if you come from a flat part of the country, which is a lot of the country, <laughs> the uh, the hills are even amazing to people. And again, that's something we we take for granted: the Lewiston Hill. And just the ridges and the valley is just so beautiful. And uh, yeah, really, I do believe that it is the hidden gem. And uh, that's why I wanted to study it. And I'm really happy and relieved that I feel I feel safe to live here. Yeah. And if you don't mind a little smell, even the air is pretty darn good. <laughs> and you can just be happy and remember that um, it does indeed smell like money and not cancer. <laughs> <laughs> There you go. Not too many cancer. Anyway. Not too many cancers. <laughs> oh, man. Well, cool. Uh, Nancy, thank you so much for taking time to talk with us. I know you've got a lot of, uh, I don't know, maybe you've already planned ahead. You are, well, um, I know you, so you probably have a little bit of planning left to do for school <laughs> to start on Monday. Um, <laughs> so thanks for talking with us. Oh, of course. Happy, happy to do it. Uh, Drew, do you have any questions left nancy is there anything we haven't hit i i think i think you did a great job i think uh good i think people need to oh if you want to find the paper right yeah i practiced this so here's what you google okay you google scott who is the first author johnston with a t that's that's the last author so that's me that the, the the, the primary investigator and then paper mill Idaho you should come up with the paper so all right Scott, Scott Johnston, Johnston paper mill Idaho perfect and I will uh when I post this I'll put a link up on the Facebook too where people can find it as well oh that would be wonderful yeah so cool nice well it has been a gas if I do say so myself. <laughs> How long have you been sitting on that one? Uh, like five minutes. <laughs> um, and it, it was awesome to have you on in seriousness. Um, and, and, you know, we hope in the future we can have you on again soon. Yeah, maybe to talk about wildfires. Yeah. Great. That sounds great. Thanks. Thank you. This episode of the show is brought to you by our Patreon subscribers. Thank you so much to all of you for supporting the show. If you would like to become a Patreon subscriber, head over to patreon.com slash oldspiralpodcast. That's going to do it for this week, but the shows are not over. 
get caught up on the backlog of episodes if you haven't already. And thanks for listening. Thank you.